Thanks for checking out the Lakeshore Podcast. If this is your first time listening with us, we want you to know God loves you. We want for your hope in Jesus to be renewed and for your faith to come to life. Wherever you are joining us from, we hope this message encourages you. Open up to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. Starting a brand new series called, I Can't Live Like This Anymore. And there's a subline to it. It's healing the hurt that's hurting me. And really, we're going to talk about the importance of understanding biblical forgiveness. How does that work? And how do we begin to move that in our life? And on, a, on another kind of an opposite or, or a, a, a different reflection, we're also going to get into what happens when we can't shake unforgiveness. How, does that, how detrimental is that to our life? Some of this stuff's not even scriptural. It's secular insight about this is what's going on. And we have to come to, come to terms at some point with, with the reality that if we've got anything that's blocking the life flow, we've got to recognize we, we can't live like that. God never intended us to. And in a practical sense, we just can't. It'll wear on us. It'll chip away at relationships. It'll erode the very things that we want the most. And, and, we, and, and, and if we don't pay attention to it, eventually it'll lead us into ruin and destruction. And so before I get there, let, let me kind of ask you a couple of questions. And I want to get the, the, the kind of the, your mind going in the right direction. Have you ever said or did anything that you regret? I'm not talking about like I should have ordered the chicken instead of the fish or I shouldn't have had that extra scoop of ice cream last night and I got lots of those kind of regrets. It's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about something that, that is weighty, something that maybe wounded a relationship. Maybe you shattered trust with somebody. Uh, maybe you created this divide and, and man, you wish you could take that back. You'd do anything in the world to rewind the clock and have a do-over on that, but you can't. And you don't know how to fix it, so you just live with the pain. You live with that regret, you live with that shame, and, and you're just kind of managing whatever the loss was. But maybe when, when I say that it, what comes to mind is not something you did, it's something that somebody's done to you. But maybe it's something that they said or, or, or something that they did, and, and you're at a place where they won't even acknowledge it. It's like they don't even see it. You try to bring it up, and they're like, no, that, that's, not, that's not true. I didn't do that at all. So they won't even acknowledge it, much less apologize. And so you, you have learned or you're currently just learning to live with the pain of this lingering insensitivity with this lingering denial or this feeling of rejection. And, and you tell yourself at certain points when it swells up on the inside, I just can't live like this anymore. And so if you're not careful, what you'll do to manage that, you know, that chaos on the inside is you'll start building interior walls. Now, I know that what we're getting into is a complicated subject, right? And we're going to take a series of studies to unpack some of this stuff. So, so don't get too, too, you know, in, uh, in your own head right now. But when I talk about building interior walls, it's not the same as setting healthy boundaries. That's a, it's a whole nother study. We'll get there. I'm talking about you just close certain parts of yourself off. You're not as open, you're not as vulnerable, you, you don't lean in as much in relationships or in conversations, or you might get to a place that you draw a hard line and you'll literally end a relationship because you can't live like that. 
When I ask myself that question, I have two automatic things. I mean, there's a bunch of them, right, that I've experienced, but I have two automatic ones that pop way, way up to the top. And I don't know if it's just because I you know, was a little bit younger in my life and they made such a big impression on me, but two things, and both of them happening during my young adult uh, kind of formation in my young adult life. The first one happened the day I graduated from high school. Uh, I got to tell you something about myself. I was kind of like any typical high schooler, any typical church kid high schooler, all right? And, and I really knew God was, was real. Didn't have this super tight, you know, on fire, I'm leading the Christian club on campus. I wasn't that guy. But, but I graduated from, from high school. I had a high B average. Uh, I never had a girlfriend, although it wasn't because I was super shy or, you know, backward. I was totally involved in sports. Actually got voted in the yearbook as the biggest flirt in my school. But I, but I wasn't a player. It really wasn't. It shocked me because I wasn't that guy, right? I just wasn't embarrassed to talk to, to everybody, guys and girls or whatever. And I just had fun. And so because, but I graduated from high school, never had a serious girlfriend. I was a virgin, never did drugs, never, never drank a drop of alcohol, uh, still in the middle of the sports scene and, you know, did, did very well uh, in athletics there, um, never been in trouble with the law. And so I'm painting a picture, right? I, I wasn't a, a, a perfect person, I wasn't on fire for Jesus, but I wasn't a bad guy. And I graduated from high school, and my mom was a little ahead of the curve. She already had this strong sense in her heart that I had a calling to ministry on my life. So what she anticipated was that once I got out of high school, I would already be in the know. And of course, I was going to you know, put on the table, hey, I think I want to go to Bible college. But I was behind the curve. I was starting to recognize in a young adult life, I know about going to church. I don't know about a relationship with Jesus. And so I really wanted to try to figure that out and figure the rest of my life out. And so I'm kind of on this pursuit to understand who I am. But meanwhile, my mom's on this pursuit to say, I don't understand, why aren't you enrolling in Bible college? And I finally told her, I just made the decision and said, nope, I think I'm going to take a year or two. I'm going to go to junior college. There's a couple of other things I want to explore so I can really understand who I am. And then once I get on the path, here I go. And that just, you could feel the tension bubble up until one morning she walked into the room unannounced. She'd been praying and doing some devotion and, and she walked in through unannounced and she just blurted this out. I'm still trying to wake up. And she said, if you don't fully surrender your life to the Lord, you'll always be second best. And she closed the door and walked out. No discussion, just a solid, firm declaration. And it felt like an indictment, to be honest with you, because it wasn't a secret. I wasn't a perfect guy. I was trying, but I, mean, I had, you know, same struggles and weaknesses and, and, and that, you know, everybody else at that age probably had. And so I, I remember just thinking, I don't even know what that is. But over time, I realized when she said that, it lodged a new level of insecurity in me, first of all, in my relationship with God. Because I was like, well, I don't know how to fully surrender. What does that even mean? Does that mean I have to be perfect from now on? Does that mean I can't have any you know, fun or do any of this other stuff? And I just got to sit in my Bible and read, you know, read, read it all, sit, sit in my room, read my Bible all the time and pray. I don't know how to fully surrender. But it feels like that's a pretty impossible request. Second thing it did was it registered a new level of insecurity with my mom 
because I knew I wasn't perfect. I knew that she knew I wasn't perfect and she had a front row seat to what was going on in my life. And I thought, I don't know how to what, do this thing, fully surrender what you're talking about. And I'm definitely not ready to go to Bible college. So I, I, I kind of reasoned in my head, if, if what she's saying is true, if that's the way it is, here's my expected future. Just get used to living in a relationship with mom and God under constant disappointment, probably some kind of penalty, some kind of disqualification there, and the end result in me, I, don't, I probably didn't phrase it this way, but the end result was, I thought, I, I can't live like that. But I did. For the next two years, which leads me to the second thing that I think about. The second thing happened after two years, the tension in our home just kept growing. It's like every time I walked in the house, my mom, did you enroll in Bible college? Are you thinking about Bible college? Have you fully surrendered to the Lord? I don't even know what she's talking about. Meanwhile, I'm, I'm not doing bad stuff. I'm still trying to figure out. I'm going to community college and I'm, I'm working a job and, and I'm trying to explore different avenues and trying to understand, but none of them was hitting this mark. And so it, it finally all came to a head on one day. We had this huge argument. I don't even remember what started it. She said something. I said something back. Then she said something. And then I said a whole bunch of stuff that I never should have said. And when that happened, my dad, who, who was Switzerland at the time, Right? He's just super neutral. He's not taking any sides. And my dad stepped in to try to de-escalate the situation. And I was in such a froth. You know, here I am, this 20-year-old guy, and hormones are flying, and I really am trying, and I feel under pressure because I can't quite get things dialed in, but I'm not going to do what mom said because that doesn't make any sense. And, and so, I mean, I was, I was under pressure. And when dad stepped in, he kind of came around the back, and, and he did almost reactionary defensively. I don't even remember deciding to do it, I stepped back and just kind of pushed him. And when I did, dad lost his balance. And he, he, he fell onto the floor, tumbled over, and he sat up, still on the floor looking at me. And here, here's, what I, here's what I saw. Here, it, here it, it was my lifetime hero sitting on the floor because of something I did, looking at me with a tear streaming down his face. And he simply said, is this what you want? And it broke me. I didn't know how to talk this thing through. Obviously, our family wasn't really good at that. We didn't know how to apologize so that there was restoration and forgiveness. We weren't really good at that. And so I did the only thing I knew how to do without apology, without explanation. The next morning when my parents went to work and my brothers went to school, I packed everything I could in a duffel bag and I left the house. A scrawny little note. Uh, I moved won't be here anymore. And for the next three years, I hardly spoke to my parents. I'm not saying it was great, but I couldn't live that way. And I, I, I just made a reactionary decision. And for the next three years, I did everything that I thought I was supposed to do. I, I, I found myself ironically ended up in Bible college. It's a whole nother story. God kind of tricked me into it. I didn't even realize I was studying for the ministry till I'm in my junior year. And I'm like, wait, what? I'm studying for the ministry? I thought I was just enrolling in classes to understand more about how to be a Christian and to learn more about the Bible because I know God's real and I want to be a great Christian guy but I'm trying to figure out what else I'm doing. So I'm on two different pathways at the same time. And when I finally woke up three years later, I realized once more, okay, I couldn't live like that, but I can't live like this either. I don't get to see my brothers. 
I don't get to talk to my dad. I don't get to talk to my mom. I mean, I'm so fractured here just trying to survive. I thought, I can't live like that either. And it was only the grace of the Lord that began to help me and my parents to understand how do we rebuild this bridge so that we could be whole again, and we were. But today we're going to start a new series. And I want you all that in your mind because I know the context is vastly different, but I I can't imagine that you can't relate to some aspects of that. Maybe you can see some things in small portions that are happening in a relationship now. But but we're going to walk through this series. It's going to take us a number of weeks to unpack, so don't get impatient and don't get all in your head about it. Just let it unfold from the scriptures. But we're going to talk about what is a biblical unforgiveness? What is it and what is it not? Because we have a lot of pseudo things that we're trying to do, and they're not working for us, but we feel like, well, we're supposed to do something as a Christian, so we're we're just trying to to step out and begin to do it. We're going to talk about why it's imperative. I mean, it's just vital. It's non-negotiable that as Christians, we forgive. We're going to talk about how we forgive, and we're we're going to talk some about the destructive effects that unforgiveness has on our life, and we're doing all of that because forgiveness is so high on, on, the, on the list for God so that our life doesn't get clogged and doesn't get compartmentalized defensively or in bitterness or in resentment or, or in regret. And, and, and then God can't flow and, and, and unfold the fullness of his plan for us. We don't get to live this joyful, happy just adventurous life because on the inside, man, we're so surgically tore up everywhere. And that, and that is never, ever God's plan. In fact, it's one of the first things that he deals with when he comes into a relationship with us. The first thing we get is forgiveness. The first thing he does is he clears everything in the relationship between us and him so we can now have this free conversation. We can be in each other's company and we can laugh and we can enjoy and we can unpack stuff without the fear of it being misunderstood or being, you know, uh, drug, the past drags up with us. He, the first thing he does is forgiveness. And, and it's supposed to be that high on our list. And so we're gonna begin to talk about that. It's gonna take us a number of weeks, but if you'll stay with us, I promise you, you will understand, and if you lean in and activate, you'll experience the forgiveness of God, not only flowing to you, but through you like you never, ever have before. We're going to study today the forgiveness of God. We're going to start laying a foundation by looking at one of his parables about the unforgiving servant. And here's what the goal is to walk away with. We're going to try to set three foundational truths about biblical forgiveness in place. And in order for you to understand this from this parable, for those of you that may not be familiar with it, or maybe you've read it, you know, with kind of a little bit of a slant, let me kind of help before we read it together. And let me just tell you, this is, there's three primary characters in this particular parable. Now, there's more than three, but three primary ones, and I'll point them out. Three primary ones that you have to keep your eye on. The first one is the king, and the king represents God. All of this summarizes at the end, but three, the the king, and the king represents God. The second one, we'll call him servant number one, and that represents us in our relationship with the king, relationship with God. And then the third character is servant number two, and that represents any and everybody else that we have relationship with, all right? So keep that in mind, and and let let the parable soak in, and let me just read the parable. Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. Then Peter came to him, that's Jesus, and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? Up to seven times? And Jesus said, I don't say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. And here's where he turns the corner. He said, therefore, 
The kingdom of heaven is like. Now, the moment you hear that, you need to lean in and pay attention because God's going to show you something in parable form, how life with God, life in his kingdom, this is how it works and it will work for all of eternity. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king, that's God, who, listen, who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. I mean, he, this was his idea. This is what he wants to do. And verse 24, and when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed 10,000 talents. Okay, one was servant number one, and he owed 10,000 talents, which to you and I doesn't mean a lot, but scholars say back then was an outrageously enormous amount. In fact, today, depending on where the economy is fluctuating, we're probably talking somewhere around the neighborhood of $226 billion dollars. Now, this wasn't a real estate mogul. This wasn't a development tycoon. This was a servant who somehow racked up a debt with the king of $226 billion. And and listen to what happens. And when he had begun, the king had begun to settle accounts. uh, I'm sorry, I'm passing verse 25. But as he was not able to pay, his master, that's the king again, commanded that he be sold with his wife and children. Can I just put a little tag in there? Our, our, our befuddlements in our life have generational consequences. I know sometimes we think, well, it's my life. I can do what I want. Oh, okay, but I'm telling you, this stuff falls out. This, this stuff ripples down. And so it says, and all that he had and, and that, or some translations say, until payment was made, which, by the way, would be never, ever, ever because a servant can't pay $226 billion in 20 lifetimes. The servant, therefore, fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will repay you all, which the king's like, no, you won't. You can't. Even if your heart says you want to, there's no way that you can possibly do that. So notice the king's reaction in verse 27. Then the master of the servant, or the king, was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. Wonderful. It's like, what, what, what? You mean you just wiped it out? Now listen, I, I doubt that anybody in the room is in debt $226 billion. But think about wherever your debtedness now. Maybe start with your mortgage, if you have one, and move on to you know, whatever assets you have, your car or, you know, or anything else. Think about if all, somebody just came along one day and said, hey, you know what? We're just going to forgive you all of that. Starting tomorrow, you are debt-free. I mean, you know, for some people, it's like, yeah, I know we, we live that way. Praise the Lord. But other people are like, what? $226 billion, and he was just forgiven all of it. And the Bible says he was completely released. Look at the next verse. It says, but the servant went out and found one of his fellow servants. This is servant number two, who owed him 100 denarii. And, and again, this is like, we don't, we don't know what that means. So here's what scholars help us with. The approximate value in today's economy is $6.17. He was just forgiven, like maybe moments ago, of $226 billion. He turns around, walks on the street, and sees one of his buddies that owes him $6.17 and laid his hands on him and took him by the throat saying, pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him saying, have patience with me and I will repay you all, which was entirely possible by the way. And he would not, 
but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow, this is servant number one, when all the other servants saw what he had done, they were grieved. And they came to and told their master, the king, all that had been done, verse 32. Then his master, after he had called him, in other words, he called him in, he's standing in front of him, said to him, you wicked servant, I gave you all, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Here's the key. Should you not also have compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? Don't you think that's reasonable? Next verse. And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due him. Here's where the moral of the story comes. So my heavenly father also will do to do you, if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. I told you there were three truths that we're going to discover about biblical forgiveness. Here's truth number one. There's a flow to forgiveness. There's a flow to forgiveness. And this is important because once you understand this truth number one, it unlocks the other truths. Everything starts making sense. But if you don't understand this first one, which by the way, most Christians do not, if you, underst- if you don't understand this first one, you will not be able to walk in biblical forgiveness and you'll live in that tension. You'll live in, in that, you know, that bottledness, that fragmented, that hurt and resentful and bitterness, trying your best to get past it, but never quite able to do that. And so let's unpack that for a little bit. Number one, there's a flow of forgiveness. Matthew 18, we're going back to verse 27. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debts. But that servant went out and found the one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, six dollars and seventeen cents. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. First thing you have to see is the vast difference between the king's approach the king's action and what servant number one's action did, but not just what they did, the attitude in which they did it. We we go down to verse 32. It says, then his master, after he had called him, said, you wicked servant, I forgave you of all of that debt. And by the way, in the parable, he forgave him willingly. He forgave him out of compassionate heart. He wasn't angry and said, well, you'll never pay it back anyway, so fine, I'll just take the loss. None of that. No shame, no no, no, uh, guilt that he's piling on them. He was moved with compassion. He said, tell you what I'm going to do. I'm just going to wipe it all clean. Let's just start over again. Let's just push all that to the side and let's start over again. Notice how he did it and he did it because uh, the servant begged him to. Verse 33, then he says, should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? And because of that, his master was angry, delivered him to the tortures until he should pay uh, what was due him. And notice that here, here's the moral again. So my heavenly father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his trespasses. Well, maybe you're a little different than me, but the first time I read that years ago, I thought, okay, I got questions. I got a whole bunch of questions here because I don't, I don't understand how, how to pull that up. So question number one is, so is the Bible saying if I'm struggling to forgive somebody that God is not going to forgive me, like take away my salvation? Is, is that what the Bible's saying to me? And let me just be really clear about that. Absolutely not. 
That's not what, what this parable is saying at all. In fact, Ephesians chapter 2, pretty much the whole chapter, but elsewhere in, in the book of Colossians and all over the place, we find out that God's forgiveness, the salvation that's offered to us, is based 100% on our acceptance of Jesus' work on the cross. It's by faith, not by our work. We don't have to earn it. We don't have to deserve it. We can't do penance and repay you know, all the sin. None of that's true. We simply accept what Jesus did because we couldn't do it. And so don't hear that. That's not what he's talking about. We'll unpack that as time goes on. Here's question number two. Well, then how do I forgive from the heart when I'm super hurt or I'm super angry or I'm so confused? And here's the answer. You're going to love it, but it's going to confuse you, okay? The answer to that is you can't. You absolutely can't. Well, wait, wait, but he just said I have to. Yeah, but you can't, at least not in your own strength. And by the way, you can look for it in every one of Jesus' parables. That's embedded in every parable as you and I coming to this realization that the way God does things, the way the kingdom works is vastly different than the way mankind thinks and the way mankind works. And once you realize that difference, you also realize the gap that's created in that difference is, is, a, is a gap that you can never, ever, ever, in your own strength and your own ability, you can never get over the, gap, over the gap. You can never just jump over this, well, I'm just gonna do it God's way from now on. In your own strength, not possible. And the conclusion you're supposed to come to with every one of these is, wow, we need somebody to rescue us. We need a savior. And God's like, I know, I know. And, and that's what I'm here for. That, that's why Jesus came. And so this is what all the parables will help us to understand. And, and so according to the parable then, here's what we're being told. That you and I as Christians have been forgiven of so much freely. We didn't earn it. We can't promise God, Lord, if you just save me and, and make sure I'm going to heaven and you'll be part of my life, I promise you I'll do the best I can from now on to. And we've tried to put all that stuff there, right? But all that stuff is like this guy said, just be patient, I'll repay you. And the king's like, no, you won't. You can't. And so he freely does something for him. And, and when we begin to understand the magnitude of the forgiveness of God, and we begin to understand what, what really happened the moment we accepted Jesus as not just our Savior, but our Lord, then we can start to understand why the parable says, in the same way that the king or God did for us, we turn around now and we do not have a right to hold others accountable for our failures if they ask us to forgive. In fact, let me upgrade that for us in the New Testament, even if they don't ask you to forgive, we don't have the right to not forgive. Do you remember that God came and rescued us when we were lost and dead in our trespasses and sin? Jesus came and died. We, we didn't ask. In fact, look at the picture of Jesus on the cross. And here, here are these people. They're the ones that put him there. And they're screaming and mocking and yelling. The same people that he healed, that, that he ministered to, that he fed, that he brought comfort and instructions to. This is how to live and your life will be so much better. And those same people in an angry you know, lather put him on the cross and were now mocking him. And Jesus prays, Father, forgive them because they have no idea what they're doing. 
See, we're, we're responsible for that. And, and, I, and I, get, you know, I get that, but then it leads us to this next question. Oh, okay, okay, I mean, that, that's really big. That, that's mind-blowing, but okay, I understand. But here's question number three. Then how does forgiveness work? Because I can't pull that off. How do I let go of all this pain? How do I let go of all this abuse and betrayal? And, and it might even be ongoing. How, how do, what, what do I do about that? How do I live there? How, how do I let go and compensate for the physical, the emotional, the psychological, the financial, the relational wounds that, by the way, are still super deep and some of them are bleeding, like I'm bleeding out. How do I do that? Because honestly, in, in, in my own perspective, that feels impossible. It not only feels impossible, it feels irrational. It's like, why would I do that? And it feels unjust. Where's the justice here? How, how does this scale get balanced? And let me tell you, the reason it feels impossible and irrational and unjust is because it is, absolutely. But listen to me, but so is the whole concept of salvation. I mean, think about what, when John 3.16 says that God so loved this world that had done nothing for thousands of years but reject him. And so he took this, his only begotten son, whom had done nothing but love him and remain perfectly loyal for all of eternity, and he sends him here to suffer and die so that the few that would accept could receive full and forever forgiveness. That's just crazy. I mean, that, that's a ludicrous story. That's an irrational story. That's an unfathomable, unjust. The scales of justice are tipped. That's an act of mercy that we can't even get our head wrapped around. But this is exactly what happened, and it's all true. What's also true is once you begin to, 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 to live out the Christian life, you realize the Bible's full of all kind of crazy stuff that God asks us to think, God asks us to say, God asks us to do, God asks us to open up to experience that in and of our own strength is absolutely impossible. In fact, it's counterintuitive, it's irrational. That this is nuts to even think that we, we could approach there. But the New Testament comes along especially and says, but when the life of God is in you, when the Holy Spirit lives inside of you and you are regenerated with this power, with, with this strength, with this wisdom, this focus, this ability that you don't know how you came up with it, it it's just you're, you're able to do something, to go, to go longer than you thought you could. When the power of God works in you, the New Testament tells us we can do all things, everything. There's not anything in the Bible that's impossible. So here's the question again. So how does forgiveness work? And here's the answer. Forgiveness is a supernatural flow that is first extended to us by God so that it can flow through us to others. It's a supernatural flow. That's the big key that most Christians don't understand, right? They think, well, God said forgive, I have to forgive, but there's no supernatural in exchange. There's nothing happening on the inside that's gonna allow and empower them to do it. Nothing's changed or renewed their mind to this brand new ball game that they're in since Jesus came and washed away all of their debt and not only that set them up for a lifetime of abundant blessing in all of eternity, they haven't really grasped that yet. 
And because he hasn't grasped it yet, they don't understand there's a flow. But let me show you in scripture so you don't, don't think I'm, I'm taking you know, one parable and we're kind of spinning it to make it sound really good. Uh, in Ephesians chapter four, verse 32, listen to what the instruction is. It says, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. There's our focus for today. Even as God in Christ forgave you. Well, that opens up a really important insight for us in the New Testament about this whole flow thing. When we look in the parable at the words forgive, forgiving, forgave, they all come from, from this uh, Greek word that, that's talking about, uh, a phemi, that's talking about to completely expunge a debt. And we understand that in the everyday world. Again, if somebody came up to you, if your mortgage lender called you and said, hey, this is kind of unconventional. We don't really have this very often. But somebody dropped off a check to pay your house completely off. So I'm calling to let you know the debt has been forgiven. The debt has been satisfied. You won't be receiving bills from us anymore. Please cancel your automatic payments because you are completely debt-free. We'll be sending you the title to the home in the mail. Listen, that, that's what that word aphemi means. It means to completely forgive. That's what Matthew chapter 18 is saying. But when we get to Ephesians 4, and it tells us here that we're supposed to forgive others in the same way Christ forgives us, it changes the wording completely. And now it's using this Greek word karizomai, which is from the Greek word karis, which if you're not really into that stuff, doesn't mean anything to you. But let me just say this, it's where we get the word grace. And we begin to understand that when the Bible says in Ephesians 4 that we're supposed to forgive one another, even as Christ forgave us, that term even as becomes important because it's a Greek word that means according to or in the same degree or in the same, in same way. So all of a sudden we realize, okay, we're commanded to forgive, but we have two sides of a same coin of forgiveness. On one side, Matthew 18 tells us what we have to do. We must do this, but on the other side, Ephesians 4 tells us how to do it. First thing we have to do is we have to, from our heart, we have to recognize how incredibly impossible, how completely irrational, how unfathomable it was for Jesus to extend eternal forgiveness to us, for that to supernaturally flow, and in a moment, all of the sins of our past life, but listen, not only that, but all the ones that we presently were involved in, and it gets better, and all the ones that you, that, that you will commit in the future, all of those were prepaid. All we have to do now is stay in a relationship with Jesus. First John 1, 9 says, if we confess that sin, and these, these are the ones that we have yet to commit, right, or that we're involved in now, not the ones that happened that were already forgiven at salvation, but now we've got another little smudge, ah, oh, we did it again, or we're not perfect, we're growing. And so if we confess those sins, it says that this great king is faithful and just to forgive us of that sin, wait, and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The sins we don't even know we're committing yet. The things that we don't even know, we're still tweaked and we've still got broken places and, and we've still got places we haven't even got to yet. But he says, because your heart is to stay clean, not only will I clean you there, I'll go ahead and wipe the whole slate clean. This is what God did for us. And see, because we don't understand that yet, we haven't really locked into that yet, we can't possibly understand that when, when Jesus in Matthew ten eighteen tells his disciples, okay, now freely given... You now are freely received, you now freely give. 
Just take and flow it right through you. But see, as Christians, we don't always understand what God already did, which leads us to point number two. It says, and that is this, we can only give what we've received. You can't give forgiveness supernaturally if you haven't yet received it supernaturally. I'm not saying you're not a Christian. I'm saying you don't understand what God really did. It's like you, you accepted Jesus as your Savior and your Lord, and then a lot of Christians still live in this mild state of performance, right? So if you're having a good week and reading your devotions and doing everything, then you think God's super happy with you. Yeah, relationship's going good. But if you're having a bad week, you're hiding. You don't read, you don't read your Bible because you feel like as soon as I get to the Bible, God's going to be like, oh yeah, right, read your Bible now. You're not, living, you're not living in a relationship with me. And we think it's all about performance, like somehow, Christ kind of wiped the debt from the past, but from this point on, we're responsible to earn our salvation. You won't find that anywhere in the New Testament. You'll find to the contrary, this whole thing, past, present, and future, all the way through eternity is because of the grace of God, because of his great mercy, the only reason. And so if we'll begin to understand that and receive that, let me put it back in the parable context, that there was a time in our life that you and I were forgiven a $226 billion debt. I mean, just wiped out in a moment. And maybe that debt wasn't just what you'd already racked up, but you're in a spot, you're gonna have to keep kind of pulling on that resource, so this is the debt that you're going to rack up, and they just calculated it forward and said, $226 billion, pay up. Can't. Yeah, I know that. So I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to cancel it for you. This is what God did. I'm going to show you some other scriptures that are going to open your eyes even more. But this is what God did. And if we don't understand that, if we kind of keep it in this little religious box, well, yeah, I'm a Christian. I accepted Jesus. You know, when I was five years old, I said the sinner's prayer and I accepted you. And then we just kind of go through the motions and we're just coming to church, you know, as often as we can. And, and we're, you know, doing good things and trying not to do bad things. And if that's all we think, then you're way back in a pre-salvation mindset. And if that's all you got, then that's all you can give. But when you begin to understand, oh no, this thing has escalated, you begin to understand why in Matthew 18, he, he would tell the servant, you're wicked. And here's why, because I canceled this huge debt for you, and he said, don't you think you should have treated somebody else after being forgiven of 226 billion? Don't you think you should have found that guy who owed you six bucks and said, ah. Or at least said, you know what, and no problem, just get it to me when you can. But he said, you didn't do that. He said, that, that's just wickedness. Let me read you what he says in Ephesians chapter one. Ephesians chapter one, it says, in him, that's in Jesus, we have the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin. And it's important we recognize this is because of a relationship with Christ, but it goes on and says, it's according to the riches of his grace. You're like, well, what's that? Because that sounds like a big, you know, religious fancy phrase. I don't even know what that is. Well, if you'd have been reading a little bit earlier in the chapter, he was kind of unpacking all that leading up to this. So let me go back. Verse number three, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has already blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us 
in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Well, how would we do that? Because we, we're not sinless. We can't pull that off. Having predestined us to the adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Let me just stop and unpack for a minute. When God chose you and I before the foundations of the world, he knew that we were little rascals. Some of us were going to be racking up a debt of $226 billion. Others would have a debt of $6.17. Not really. But, but there, so there's a sliding scale, right? But he knew that we were all going to be little rascals and imperfect. And yet, God said, okay, I'm going to compensate for that. And not only am I going to birth them into my family, but I'm going to sign a legal adoption, which means anything that, that any debt that's incurred while they're inside of my family, I'll take that. He did all that from the beginning of the earth. He knew all of your ups and downs, your highs and lows, your embarrassing, shameful decisions and, and the habits that you keep way back in the, he knew all that. And yet he chose us from the foundations of the world and he did all of this by Jesus Christ. Notice this, according to the good pleasure of his will. In other words, he did it because he really wanted to. No forced, no forced. It wasn't his job as the king of the earth to try to sort out, you know, injustice. And he did it because he really wanted to. It goes on to the praise and glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. We don't walk in to, to spiritual environments. When we get to heaven, we're not going to walk in, you know, and kind of just you know, like shame because there's all the patriarchs and like we're, we're in the folding chair way in the back of the room hoping nobody notices us because they're like, what are you doing here? Yeah, you need to be waiting outside. We're fully accepted in the beloved. Verse seven, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin, there it is again, according to the riches of his grace. And you say, well, boy, that's amazing right there. He's not done. Next chapter, he's still talking about it. Verse number four, but God who is rich in mercy, aka forgiveness. Forgiveness. He, he didn't do it one time, but when you do it a second time, nope, I already forgave you once. This is it. I drew a line. I tried to help you out, but obviously you're going to keep repeating. He's rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And just in case you thought, I know, and once that happens, we got to earn it. By grace, you have been saved. No pressure on you to repay. No pressure on you to earn this now. You've accepted it. You're part of the family. He goes on, he says, and raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? This is the part most Christians, they don't even get their head wrapped around as if they understood the first part. So that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. We didn't earn any of this, but if you think God is good down here, wait till you get to heaven. Not only is heaven going to be extraordinarily abundant, extraordinarily generous, but just when you feel like, you know what, I've been here about 10,000 years, kind of think I'm getting a handle on this. This is really good. The Lord's like, you like this, don't you? I sure do. Watch this. And he's going to open up a whole nother chapter and you'll go another 10,000 years trying to get your head wrapped around that. It's like, wow, wow, no way. What, what, what? Listen, no reruns in heaven. No, you know, we'll kind of get used to it and life just kind of settles into, none of that's in heaven. He, the, he's going to open up for all of eternity the enormous riches of his grace and just keep wowing us over and over and over and humbling us and throwing down our crowns like, we, we, I, I, 
How can you be that generous? I knew who I was to try to get here, but not only did you forgive me, but you went on and blessed me. He goes on, he says, for it's by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourself. It's a gift. It's a gift. It's a gift, not of works, so that nobody can boast. When we start wrapping our head around that, that forgiveness was a gift. It wasn't because we were super humble and and God saw our heart and he knew that we were gonna try to do better. No, it was a gift, a gift of gift of God. And and once we realized that not only were we forgiven $226 billion, but supernaturally and eternally, he reinstated us back into a place where the pipeline of blessing would begin, begin to flow. And he promised us, by the way, this is not just once in a while. This is a pipeline that will keep flowing and getting larger and more accelerated throughout all of eternity. This is how it's going to be. If you understood that, we'd all be up on our feet yelling and applauding and praising the Lord right now. That's true, I'm telling you. But once you step into the flow and you begin, just begin to understand the impossible, irrational, unfathomable supernatural gift of forgiveness, then it brings you to our final point this morning. And that is that we must, we must, we must fully and freely extend forgiveness to others. This is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10 to his disciples. He said, freely you've received and therefore freely give. And when we read that, we, you know, we're thinking, well, we should live generous, you know, open lifestyles. You didn't read the, pre- the preceding verses. If we go back to verse number seven, it says, and you, as you go and preach, and here's what you're preaching, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is not just good moral behavior. These are not just, you know, mature relational principles. He said, no, this is the kingdom of heaven. This is superseding, supersizing. He said, as you begin to preach, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Listen to this. Heal the sick. Cleanse the lepers. Raise the dead. Cast out demons. Let me just stop. Which one of those can you do in your own strength? Absolutely none. In fact, so much so that so many Christians don't even understand what they're holding. They don't even try. I mean, they have their kids that are sick. They won't even pray for them. They're just taking them to the doctor, which I'm not against doctors. We go to the doctors. But you don't even try to pray. You have something happening in your home and everything's going chaotic. You don't even try to stand up and say, hey, we've been redeemed. And the Bible says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. I should stand up and say, you can't cause chaos in my home. No, we're not going to live that way. No, I'm not going to be in fear that my kids are going to somehow drift. No, my children will be taught of the Lord and great will be the peace of my children. I can't say that in my own strength. I can say it because of the supernatural life of God that now flows in me. And he said, when you go start talking about the kingdom of heaven, these are the things you need to include. And most Christians don't because they don't understand. But once you start understanding, then he says the next verse, he says, now, you got that? Okay, freely you've received. Now go ahead and give that. If you don't get it, you can't give it. In fact, we pray this even in the most religious settings. We pray this prayer called the Lord's Prayer. And right in the middle of it, we declare this. We don't even know what we're declaring. We say, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lord, let it just flow through us as it's flowing to us. Let it flow right through us. See, we declare that religiously. We don't even know what we're praying. Here's the last verse I'm gonna read and we're gonna close. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, then I'm gonna jump over to verse 18 just for time. He says, by this we know love. How do we even know what love looks like? Because he laid down his life for us. Let's get our head wrapped around that. 
He goes on and says, and we also ought to lay down our lives for our brethren. And then in verse 18, he says, my little children, let us not love in word or in tongue. In other words, don't just say, you know, nice things to each other or don't put them all in a card and write a whole paragraph. And he said, don't just do that. But he said, but love in deed and in truth. And by this, we will know that we are of the truth. Not when we say it, when we can do it. Not when just, just that it's happened to us, but when we've received it and we like the king instructed in the parable, don't you think that after you've been forgiven, don't you think you should have done the same thing? When you've been forgiven all of this and promised all of eternity forever and ever and in the abundant blessing of God, don't you think you should have turned around even when the person didn't ask but they said something ugly to you? Don't you think you should have turned around and let that flow through you and say, ah, that's all right. That's all right. Not that we don't have to work some stuff out. Not that there doesn't have to be, you know, discussions and boundaries and we, we want to fix all this. But listen to me, I'm not going to hold that resentment against you. I've been forgiven so much and I've been promised so much and I'm, I'm going to be so well taken care of. I, I'm not going to hold you prisoner. I'm not going to do that. See, when you understand that, it, it's just easy to flow. But when you don't understand that, you're all counting your nickels here. $6.17, you better pay me every single penny. It's nuts. But this is what Jesus is trying to get across. So listen, we have a lot more to talk about. I know this is very complex and some of you might be carrying deep wounds and, and deep-rooted bitterness and resentment and there's no judgment or condemnation for that. We just don't want you to stay that way. Neither does God. So we're gonna unpack and talk about this, all right? But here's what you need to know this morning. We have to first lay a foundation. What is biblical forgiveness? How do we begin to get that flow? So the first thing you need to know, there's a flow to forgiveness. You can't just up and say, okay, I forgive. You, you gotta get into that flow. You've gotta let it flow to you so that it can flow through you. And sometimes, man, the offense hits you so hard or you have so much shame. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for more messages. If you like what you're hearing, share it with your friends. For more content from Lakeshore and information on services, check us out at lakeshorecf.com.